Stop the press, it's on! After two sellout events, the Wellness Summit returns to Melbourne in 2015 for two days of powerhouse wellness with your favourite wellness couch hosts and Australia's wellness elite. Join us at the Melbourne Convention Centre on Saturday, August 15th and Sunday 16th for an inspirational, educational, edutaining, fun, exciting, sensational cocktail of wellness that promises to help you take your life to the next level. Now, if you want very special access to our limited two-for-one tickets, then make sure you go to www.thewellnesscouch.com, enter your name and email address, and get on the early bird list. So pop the dates in the diary, and we'll see you there. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Pull up a rock by the campfire. It's time for that paleo show with your hosts, Sarah Stewart, Steve Hayter, and the man with no shoes, Brett Hill. Welcome to that paleo show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Sarah Stewart. I'm Steve Hayter. And I'm Brett Hill. Today's guest has a degree in nutrition with a master's in obesity science. She's been working away from the conventional nutrition she was taught for around seven years now and came to an alternative approach to health via a low-carb methodology and now also integrates paleo into her practices. Emily is currently considering returning to study to complete a PhD in ketogenics and cancer, recently embarking on a trip around the world meeting various people in this field. Emily's trip started three months ago in South Africa where she attended the first international low-carb symposium. This was followed with two months in Australia and in this short time she has already met lots of amazing people. Here to tell us more is Emily Maguire. Welcome to the show. Hi guys, thank you for having me. We're excited um, for you to join us, Emily. It's, it's clear from having a look at your blog that you're very passionate about nutrition and helping other people and we wondered if you could perhaps start off by telling us what led you down this path. Yeah, I mean I kind of, I think like a lot of people kind of sort of stumbled upon it um, kind of way. Um, I was doing pretty much the conventional training. My undergrad degree was, you know, the scientific way of eat low fat, kind of food pyramid, food plate kind of vibe. And then in around or my third year, I actually ended up taking a placement at a commercial low carbohydrate company. And originally when I went to it, I, I actually thought about reporting them to some kind of the dietetic association because I thought it was a very dangerous way and the way I had been taught, etc. Um, but I pursued it and I started working for them and it was quite a complete eye-opener. And I suppose from there, I just kind of didn't come back. Um, like I said, it kind of led me down this rabbit hole. Um, I then went on to complete my master's. Um, my thesis there was looking at low-carbohydrate diets for diabetics in particular. And um, I've worked pretty much with low-carbohydrate and more got into the the paleo and a lot more of the paleo aspect way of eating um, over the past sort of five years with it. So it's kind of just been a, you know, sort of one door kind of opens, there's more new people coming in and new science, etc. So I just, I'm really, really passionate, particularly about education that nutritionists and dietitians are given 
in undergrad, which I do postgrad degrees now. Um, I mean, if I hadn't ever stumbled upon that myself, you know, I would still be teaching the conventional or sort of low-fat wisdom. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it, I suppose. Um, and then from there, yeah, the rest of it is just kind of sort of all sort of falls on itself. And then this trip, um, there's a trip that I've been looking to do for quite a while now, and it kind of all fell into place this year. So it's certainly been eventful. Um, and currently I'm in the States, in Florida. Um, and as I say, I've been in South Africa and I'm also in Australia as well. Um, so it's been really, really interesting in terms of nutrition, particularly with regards to sort of low carbohydrate and paleo. In the different countries and in comparison to the UK as well, it is so, so different. Um, particularly in Australia as well. I mean, you guys are just so much further forward than pretty much many of the other countries that I've been to. So that's been really interesting to see. So, Emily, let's start by talking about, you are talking about the traditional education for nutritionists. You know, let, let's start mm-hmm. by talking about what you do get taught in nutrition school and, and perhaps a little bit about why that is still the case and, and why that's so slow to change. Yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah, literally our conventional teaching is we do all of the basics of biochemistry, physiology, you know, all those kind of things. And then your nutrition is really, I mean, when, when I say it is the, the eat low fat and you have the skim milk, have the low fat products, eat your starch carbohydrates with every single meal. I mean, I remember having, when I was sort of in my third year before kind of came across it all, I remember, you know, telling diabetics that they had to have carbohydrates of every single meal and you know they didn't need to give up sleep and it was okay and as long as they just changed the cooking method of how they made their you know potatoes etc then it was completely fine and why it's like that I mean even I look at some of the lecturers I had obviously mostly nutritionists and dietitians they've been that you know a dietitian for around 20 years I mean I can completely understand that that was the way that they were taught so unless you kind of find this way and find the evidence and start really looking into it, then there's not really any way for them not to, to believe that way, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it's not going to change for a very long time. Um, I look at my university and they were very, very cool, sort of low fat and that kind of way and conventional way with it. And I think particularly in the UK, um, you know, it's just, it's so ingrained and that is just the way the practice is and that's just the way that it's done and it's been done for so many years and the people at the top are the people that obviously believe in that way as well. So, One of the things that I was curious about, Emily, and we talk about when, when you look at the low-carb movement is that it's uh, it's it's easy to advocate for low carb to to get quick results and to shift some weight and to improve the quality of your health and and get your body functioning a better from you know perhaps a a state of not not functioning so well. But what what are some of the dangers perhaps of going a little bit too extreme with low carb and and how can people recognise that that might be the way they're going? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, and I think a lot of people, when you say low carb, it just people think it's just a blanket term. You know, I mean, I know that the way that I practice and take the approach with it is it still should be very individual based. Yeah. Um, you know, any form of diet that you do, it's about starting, having a starting point and then working from it. If something that worked for you three years ago might not necessarily be what's going to work for you, you know, five years down the line. And yeah. you have got to look for changing it up. The major thing with low carb and 
something that I'm really, really key and to try and sort of um, promote with people is that a lot of people, I think, some of the dangers is they just get so engrossed in this total carbohydrate content and they don't take a look at the, you know, the overall picture with the diet. So you can run the risk, for example, if you don't really understand sort of what low carb is, then all you do is just cut your carbs at a very, very low level. You think it's all just about having you know, as much meat as possible, etc., and you can miss out on a lot of um, you know, important micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, etc. If you don't get your right amount of veg, and obviously different people from fruits within there as well. So I'm a really big advocate of making sure that people understand that it's not just a case of just get your carbs as low as possible, and you know have your your protein there and your fat really high as well. Yeah. And then also I'm a real big advocate of saying to people that. Like you said, I mean, the first, obviously, when anybody starts any form of low-carb paleo, etc., the first few months, you always get the best results when you first start. And it's about, obviously, trying to find a way that's going to be sustainable for you. And that's not only just about eating for your health, but other things like culture and social, you know, all these different things. And I think if some people think that, they could have to just be so drastic and so, you know, sort of bogged down and quite dogmatic about it. I think that's when it can get quite dangerous as well. You still need to see this as a lifestyle change. You know, this isn't just something that should be a quick fix as well, which I think a lot of people sometimes have become to it for. So I'm quite a proponent of making sure that people understand the type of approach that they're going to be doing and how that needs to be followed for a lot more of a lifestyle rather than just a, a quick fix for a few months. Yeah, so important that people understand the approach and, and like you say, it's not just something temporary but, you know, something to contribute and give for their, for their lives for, you know, going forward. A question that we get quite often, Emily, is actually about um, the differences between low-carb and, and paleo because I guess they, they do get lumped into the same basket and there's heaps of similarities. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I get asked the question quite a lot as well. I mean, the first thing I often say with different sorts of low carbon paleo, I mean, there's there's quite standout, you know, major things maybe like some people on paleo obviously they can't tolerate dairy, um, so they obviously cut out things like that. Um, it's it's obviously a lot more with paleo, and this is one of the reasons why I kind of sort of look at a lot of the practices of paleo as well is a lot about food quality it's about sourcing it's about sustainability so it's taken to this aspect it's a lot more than just the macronutrient um, ratios that you're having and I think that particularly since I sort of came into this through low carb I think that you know the low carb community is getting a lot better at that as well you know sort of looking at this kind of the sourcing of food etc um I often think as well, I mean, sometimes, and obviously I was at Paleo Effects, and it was, it was really amazing to see, and, um, you know, all the people there, and the different approaches, you know, everyone does have this kind of slight different take on whether it's Paleo low-carb, or it's Eugenic, whether it's high-carb, etc. Um, but I often just think as well that sometimes trying to, like, argue amongst sort of the two different, I mean, it's we're, we're obviously all sort of agree on the bigger picture of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously no processed foods, and obviously refined grains, sugars, etc. And I think again, it comes back down to that individual base. If you're someone who's maybe more insulin resistant, for example, then maybe lower carb would be better for you. If you're someone who is very active, you know, crossfitter, etc., then maybe having a little bit more carbs is is okay within your diet. And, and I think that's perfectly fine. 
Um, and I, again, as I say, would um, have a lot of my clients sort of change it around depending on what it is their um, goals are and what it is they're looking to do and, and what their, their body type is as well. So I think there are definitely differences. Um, but I wouldn't say that they're, they're as vast maybe sometimes as what a lot of people think they are. So, Emily, one of the things that sparked my interest in the introduction was the, the little bit about obesity science because obviously obesity mm-hmm. is a massive deal in our society now and it's, it's a huge issue and, and affects yeah. just so many different aspects of health right throughout the whole spectrum. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about you know, what is obesity science? And I'd love to hear your take on this whole obesity epidemic and where it's coming from. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the sort of obesity science, effectively what we did within that, that degree or scientists is looking at everything from the etiology of obesity so you know why does obesity come around it's not a, a simple straightforward energy in equals energy out there's obviously so many different um, multifaceted reasons for obesity including your biology your physiology your genetics then also your environment and your psychology as well and if anyone ever says that you know it's just one of these factors then they aren't really sort of truly understanding the obesity map I don't know if you've ever seen sort of the basically root map that's kind of out there, but it's a really, really convoluted, um, quite cool map which on all the different things that come into play with regards to BC. So it's not as a simple, straightforward um, thing to understand. And then it's also looking at the different physiological mechanisms, why it can happen in some people and not in other people. We look at the epidemiology around the world. I mean, obviously, Obesity used to just be thought of a, almost like a, a rich person's kind of disease, if you like. But now, actually, a lot of the developing countries have um, a really high rate of obesity now as well. Um, a lot of countries that never used to. And it's actually taken over malnutrition. Um, overnutrition is a much bigger problem in most countries now than what malnutrition is as well. And obviously, when I mean, you look at a lot, most of the Western countries as well, the problem with it is just exponential now. Um, and I mean, even if you look at say, the UK, for example, the diabetes alone, I think the most recent forecast report was that by the year 2030, if we don't get diabetes under control, which is um, obviously direct comorbidity of, of obesity, then we're literally going to cripple our NHS system. And that's purely just through diabetes alone. That's not taking into account any of the other comorbidities that come with it. Um, so the direct and indirect costs of obesity to society even things like um, that we don't even think about. So sick days, for example, generally people who are um, obese, particularly morbidly obese, have more sick days. Um, as I say, they put a lot more um, burden on the healthcare system as well. So it's a really, really major problem. And obviously in the countries that are sort of top three, which generally are obviously the States and, and Britain within there. So those are the countries that are really, really in dire need of having a overhaul and um, the complete system with the virus yeah it's pretty it's pretty far out stuff with regards to those projections emily and and um what's what's uh, likely to happen if we don't change our tune and i think we're seeing some really great stuff uh, recently we've seen the uh the food pyramid be revamped in in australia which is exciting and it's mm. a you know it's a positive move in the right direction it's a recognition 
uh, of of what you know what's being discovered and 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 the research that's being done about it. And one of the things that grabbed me in the intro as well is uh, about ketogenic uh, diets and their impact on illness, specifically around cancer, as as something that you're curious about. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and what you what you're looking to uh, discover or postulate there and prove? Study with the yeah, I mean, um, like I said, I, I came into ketogenics, particularly sort of at the weight loss kind of obesity route with it. Um, but the more that obviously I've looked into it, I mean, the therapeutic potentials for ketogenic, and, and that's another thing that I would say as well. I think a lot of people think that, you know, if you advocate ketogenic, then you maybe advocate it for everyone. I don't necessarily think ketogenic is the right approach for um, for everyone. Yeah. Um, however, I do think particularly for therapeutic disease, so when you see such as well, epilepsy, which is, is obviously very well already known, but then things that are a lot more emerging just now are things like Alzheimer's, MS, Parkinson's, and obviously cancer. Um, and the aspect of cancer is just really fascinating to me. It's just kind of when I was working um, for sort of this old commercial company I worked with, we actually did work with some um, cancer patients as well. And the the theory behind it obviously actually stems a lot longer. So it's not just that, although the new science is kind of coming out now, it is obviously a theory that dates back sort of way back to the 1930s. And it's all to do around the, the Warburg theory. So it's obviously to do with the theory that um, cancer cells lack this metabolic flexibility. So that that basically means that they can only function on glucose. So a very obviously basic cellular level without getting into too many mechanisms. At a basic level, if you cut off the glucose supply to the cancer cells, then the theory is that it can't go on ketone bodies. Therefore, you can obviously help um, suppress tumor growth. And then obviously, coupled with conventional um, medicines as well, it can it has been shown to really help improve um, some people's um, uh, cancer of the stages. So for me, I just find it very, very um, fascinating. And I think for the power of nutrition to be able to do something like that, it's just, it just is really, really fascinating to me. The science that's coming out, and actually that's why I'm in Florida. I'm, I'm meeting and going to Dominic Diagostino's lab in the next few days just to see what work they're up to and, and where they're at with their research. And um, so it's, there's some really exciting things come out. Obviously, at the minute, a lot of the evidence that we have is in either animal or cell cultures. So it is now about getting a lot more human trials done, which can be a little bit more tricky with ethics and things like that. But I think the way that it's going, I think there's a lot more attention coming to it now. And like I said, if it's something that can be done with food, um, I just think that it's a really, really powerful um, tool that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Emily, I'm with you. I never cease to be amazed at, um, you know, the, the changes that switching up your diet and paying attention to what go, goes into your body can can do. And I think it's really wonderful. Um, and also it puts the power back, you know, with the person, you know, we can to some degree control um, our health as well or, or impact it at the very least. So I'm really interested to hear perhaps some more practical tips, um, perhaps for someone listening that may have a fairly standard Western diet currently, but they're a bit curious and, and wondering maybe what are some simple things that they can do um, to start changing things up and hopefully seeing a positive impact in their health so could you maybe share your top three tips my top three tips for for going sort of low carbs you mean that yeah one? so um yeah tips to, to help improve nutrition 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing, and I think this is really sort of getting understood by everyone now, is, you know, cut out the sugar. That's the absolute first thing that I think every single person, no matter if you believe in whatever your, your beliefs are with nutrition, I mean, sugar is just something that there's just absolutely no need for us to have, you know, within our diet at all. Um, so completely would always say to people to just get rid of the, the sugar. Um, refined grains as well. So again, if this is where the kind of argument comes in and you know, some people are okay to have rice and some people are okay to have potatoes, etc. Um, but I would say to people to cut out the refined grains. Um, so obviously things um, particularly contain gluten and wheat as well. I don't think there's any need for us to have that within our diet at all. And I think a lot of people without even realising it, would probably feel a lot better, particularly um, females who quite often suffer from you know, bloating and gas, etc. Quite often cutting those things out are some of the first things that can make a huge, huge impact. Um, and then just really getting into the basics of, um, you know, trying to cook from scratch where possible. And that doesn't need to be difficult recipes, it doesn't need to be big gourmet-style cooking, but just stop relying on, you know, sort of processed ready meals, and things that you can just pick up from, you know, supermarkets, etc. Um, I think that, yes, in today's sort of society, everyone is really busy and all those kind of things. But I think we have so much at our disposal that we can, um, you know, get into this aspect of cooking real food from scratch and just having a little bit of pre-planning can definitely help with that as well. And mm. um, so taking, you know, pre-prepping at the beginning of the week or cooking in bulk those kind of things and and just having those three things I think is a, a really good starting point and then most people at 9.10 will start to see benefits and then obviously can take it a lot further from there as well. Now um, Emily you've spoken about the sort of the low carb approach and how you, it is important for that to be you know to vary for individuals and I know there'll be a lot of individuals out there listening to this and they're thinking yeah but just tell me what percentage I should have and obviously as you said that, that's going to vary person to person but for you can you give yeah. us an idea of the sort of I guess range you're talking about like what would be the lower yeah. end of a carbohydrate range you would recommend and what would be the higher end? Yeah. So the kind of levels that I go with, if I was saying to someone that they were on a ketogenic approach, their carbohydrate content would be around about 20 to 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. Now, the lower end, so around 20 to 30, it would depend how insulin resistant you were. So if you were someone with metabolic syndrome or type 2 diabetes, then I'd probably put you on the lower end of that 20 to 30 range. If you were someone who... Um, say it was for a therapeutic use and you were someone that did have sort of that issue and um, with weight gain and you just probably cope with a little bit higher. But the golden rule for ketogenics is to get your body into that state of allowing it to use the ketone body and not using glucose for energy is 50 grams of carbohydrate or less. Then I kind of say that a uh, sort of a low carbohydrate, if you like, is around about like, the 50 to 80 grams. And then I would say a bit more of a moderate is around 80 to 130 grams. Um, so for me personally, I generally don't put many people over and above 130 grams just for the type of population groups I work with. Um, however, that being said, I know even some athletes actually who could probably do with a lot more than 130 grams. And because of the amount of exercise spectrum that they do, they can probably, that would still be quite low for them, if that makes sense. So those are the kind of ranges that I kind of go with. Um, I find it difficult given percentages and I always, I'm always asked for the percentages of the fats protein to the carbs. I just think that sometimes where the problems can kind of come with it. And I think 
like you said before, where sometimes the dangers that can come with low carb, I think people can get too bogged down in these percentages. And really, it just doesn't give too much of an accurate representation of you know, the food that you should be eating. So, so Emily, I think sometimes people hear that and they, they sort of hear grams of carbs and percentages of carbs and they, they have trouble sometimes grasping what that actually means. So can you give us a bit of an idea of like that lower end and that higher end, like what that might actually look like in terms of the foods eaten? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ketogenic level, if you're 50 grams or less, I mean, an example, Dave, so your morning, your breakfast would either be something like um, you know, two or three eggs scrambled with a handful um, of spinach with some salmon, a little bit of cream cheese, or it could be a sort of a nut-based granola, kind of like a homemade, um, a little bit of yogurt and some berries as well. So again, depending on how um, tolerant you are of certain carbohydrates, so you could have a little bit of fruit within there. Your lunch, generally, I would have people on sort of a really big salad, a lot of vegetables. Um, any kind of sort of protein options, so you know, chicken, fish, anything along those lines. And then your evening meal again would be something along the lines of a um, protein option. And it would just be, a, you know, it's not talking about having slabs and slabs of meats, etc. And again, with a, I, I get people to have a decent amount of non-starchy um, vegetables. So anything that are green and leafy, um, things like aubergine or eggplant, as you guys call it there, or zucchini, uh, mushrooms. Um, anything along those lines. So generally, your carbohydrate sources when you are ketogenic are coming from your um, your vegetables, maybe a small bit of fruit, and sometimes a little bit of um, dairy and nuts and seeds as well. If you're a little bit higher, um, so quite often for other people, if I put them on that kind of either moderate to kind of the lower end, then I would have them having things like a little bit of sweet potato, um, so whether even meal, for example. Um, or a little bit um, of some beans or lentils as well. Um, so again, it's just very dependent on the individual of what they could sort of tolerate. But as I say, the ketogenic, you're getting a lot of the carbohydrates, so it's just from your vegetables and your fruits within there. And if you are on the sort of higher end, then we can obviously look add in other sources of vegetables to get your carbohydrate sources. That's a great rundown, Emily, and I'm so pleased that um, you're acknowledging the, the individual differences and I think that's something that's really getting out there in the, the paleo and low-carb community. You know, we're all different and we need to adopt our approaches accordingly, which is wonderful. Um, I'm curious, I have whether it's people that are adopting low-carb, paleo or any kind of nutritional change really, quite often I hear, um, oh, yeah, I tried it but it didn't work um, or, you know, they, they don't tend to stick to it. And I'm wondering in terms of, of low-carb, roughly how long does it take to get the body to, to switch over to be ketogenic? Does that vary from mm-hmm. person to person? And um, will people experience sort of detox symptoms or? Or, um, you know, yeah. a slump in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, ketogenic, the first and foremost illegal ketogenic is generally that first sort of week you can get what's known as this, this keto flu. And that's obviously whilst your body is going through the change of, of relying on glucose for its energy to relying on the ketone bodies for its energy. It generally takes about sort of two to three days for your body to go through you know, the depletion of the glycogen and then the getting its source of gluconeogenesis and then eventually purely switching over um, predominantly to the ketone body um, production. 
Keto adaptation, so this obviously concept which is mostly coined by Stephanie and Jeff Bolick um, in their book, which is the art and science of low-carb living. And for most people, to get in this pure state of keto adaptation can actually take around about six to eight weeks. Um, so to really get the benefits of what the ketone body can um, you know, produce for you, it can take that a little bit longer. And you're definitely right. So a lot of people that I find, they'll, they'll try it for like a week or two weeks and just think it hasn't worked for them, and um, they're still feeling very lethargic, etc. A lot of the time as well, when a lot of people say that they've tried it and it didn't work, it is actually because they haven't formulated it properly. Um, so there is a very big difference between you know trying to do ketogenic and then trying to do ketogenic well. Mm. So there is obviously this concept of you know, a well-formulated ketogenic program. Um, and again, it's just because then people just get bogged down in this they just think it just needs to be as low as carb as possible and they don't balance that out. And I, I, quite often as well, what a lot of people then do is they try and maybe make it low fat as well, which is obviously the complete opposite you want to go because if you're not giving your body any, you know, that form of glucose that it can use, it obviously needs um, additional fat from your diet and obviously your body as well to give you that energy. So, so yeah, so it can, it can take that little bit of time to get to the adaptation. The kind of getting your body into that sort of fat burning state generally should occur around sort of about two to three days. Your body really should start um, producing the ketone body by then. Um, but again, it's, it's and I think people get sick of hearing this kind of, uh, it is very individual. I mean, I've had some people who have had absolutely no symptoms whatsoever, um, but they are registering ketone bodies. And I've had other people who have um, tried to go on ketogenic and their symptoms have just been so severe that we've had to you know take them out of that range so again it's just very very individual and for people along those lines if they do feel that their symptoms are too severe what I would get them to do is to titrate slowly into ketogenic range rather than going from I mean, some people you've got to look at they're having you know four or five six hundred grams of carbohydrates a day and quite often it's you know really high sugar refined um, carbohydrates that they're having so it's a huge change for your body to go through and sometimes it's a bit too much of a shock for it as well and emily obviously with with um ketogenic diets and and this sort of way of living not being the mainstream for those that are embarking on on giving it a go what are some great resources that people can go to for support um to help uh you know educate themselves about how they can tweak this best for their own health Mm-hmm. Um, first, the, a really good one for recipes that I often recommend people to is Maria Emmerich um, site, and I think it's um, oh, Mindfully Nourish, I think it might be. Let's double check, but she has got amazing recipes. And um, I think a lot of people, again, when they start ketogenic, they can feel um, that there's not enough variety because they're maybe not sure what they can have. So her recipes are really, really great. Um, to just keep you kind of on track with that. Um, other sources, so places like um, the Diet Doctor, the Food Source, um, actually the the Low Carb Down Under um, that you guys have got over there, they've also got quite a good website with a lot of resources as well, yeah. particularly around sort of ketogenic. Um, they actually have some events coming up in June with Jeff Wallet coming over as well. So for people maybe in Melbourne and Sydney, they might want to check that out and ask Jeff a lot of questions if you there the ultimate chance um, and then I also recommend Steve and Jeff books so the art and science of low carbohydrate living and then they also have another one which is the art and science um, of low carbohydrate performance so for, particularly for people who are 
endurance athletes, because this is the other aspect that's becoming quite big in now, is that a lot of endurance athletes are starting to um, use this approach. And there's a new documentary coming out, which I think actually made out this month, and it's the second serial killer oh, coming yes. out. Yeah. It's Run on Fat. Yeah, so Donald's obviously um, done that. So we got to see it um, when we were in South Africa. And it's obviously the couple that did the expedition um, on the sailing. I completely forgotten where they were sailing to and from. It was a very long expedition, I think, over a month. And they did it purely ketogenic. Um, yeah. So a lot of people you know, thought it couldn't be done, that they wouldn't have enough reserves, etc. Um, but they, they did it and they completed it and you know, all these they were measured and a lot of people were involved in that side of it. So And there's now a lot of uh, long-distance runners, you know, Ironman competitors that are now coming out saying that that's, that's kind of the approach that we've been following with it. So so I would definitely check out that. And the first serial killers as well. That's it's also a good one for, I think, people just coming to this approach, maybe not because they're you know, a performer or an athlete or whatever, but just want to do it just to see if it can help with their health. Mm. Um, so those are really good sources, I think, to get started on. And then from there, you know, that's when you can really start sort of immersing yourself within it. And um, I think it's sometimes as well, and the way with the internet, we can be inundated with um, information on it. So those are normally my kind of go-to resources. That's fantastic, Emily. You're such a wealth of wealth of knowledge, and um, we really look forward to hearing about the the next step of your journey and where all of this latest um, stage of your research takes you. Um, it's it's great that you're so accessible, and, and the way that you share is is really easy to understand. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us all today. Um, and to follow Emily and learn more from her hard work and experience, jump online and check out her blog, which is lowcarbgenesis.com and like her Low Carb Genesis page on Facebook as well. As always, we hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did. Remember, you can join the conversation by liking that Paleo Show on Facebook and following us on Instagram. Until next week, continue to share your story and help to grow the Paleo tribe worldwide. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.